Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Ella Whelan, assistant editor at Spiked, and this week I talked to Brendan O'Neill about the centenary of the Representation of the People Act. Linda Bellos talks to me about campus censorship, and Wendy Kaminar looks at the problems with Me Too. This week, 100 years ago, Parliament passed the Representation of the People Act. It granted suffrage to women over 30 who either owned property or had a degree, and working-class men. It was some years before all women got the vote, but the 1918 Act should be celebrated. It was a great gain, won in part by the efforts of the suffragettes. We've had a week of celebration, mainly focusing on women's suffrage with women-only programmes and symbolic protests outside Parliament, But there's something niggling us at Spiked about the political class's celebration of democracy. After all, most of them have spent the last year and a half arguing that a democratic vote be overturned. Does it stick in your craw that those who so despise the expression of democracy today are attempting to pay lip service to the democratic demands of the suffragettes in 1918? Brendan O'Neill, Spiked's editor, certainly has something to say about it. I caught up with him to find out more. So, Brendan, this week is the centenary of the Representation of the People Act. Are you celebrating that? I am, yes, actually. I think it was a great leap forward for politics in this country, for democratic rights, of course, for women, some women, and for working class men. I think there's a lot to celebrate in it. I think it did represent an important expansion of democracy, um, not only to women over 30 who owned property or had a degree from a good university, but also, more importantly, and often has been forgotten in the whole celebration for working class men as well, 5.6 million of them, no less. So that's incredibly important. It brought on board to political decision making huge swathes of the population who had been shut out and often violently shut out. If you look at the 1800s, when men who fought for the right to vote were beaten off the streets or shot and killed and all sorts of huge sacrifices that they made. So I think 1918 and that act was too partial, didn't give the vote to all women. It was highly reluctant on the part of the elite and it did not bring in anything like full democracy or even full parliamentary democracy. So it was extremely limited, but as an example of how even elites that run entire empires, as Britain did at the time, must occasionally buckle to people's demands, as an example of that, I think it's a pretty positive thing and worth celebrating. And this week, the in, pretty much the entire political class were talking about the 1918 Act. They were all praising the suffragettes for fighting for democracy. There's lots of people tweeting about it. It became a kind of almost a thing like if you didn't tweet about it, you are not, the, not a good person, not on the ball. But most of them have spent the last year and a half slagging off the biggest political mandate in British history. You just mentioned that one of the important things about the 1918 Act was that it enfranchised working-class men. Working-class men, Brexit voters, have been had, given quite a rough time of the last year. I mean, isn't there an irony there? Yeah, the nerve of these people is extraordinary. I mean, these are, you know, the very people who were at the forefront of celebrating the suffragettes this week, you know, with posing for pictures at Parliament or writing newspaper articles or tweeting endlessly those exact same people are the people who have been fuming against the brexit vote and the important thing there is not only that they fumed against the brexit vote because of course we all have the right to say people you shouldn't have voted for that or you shouldn't have voted for this or i wish you didn't vote for 
the Labour Party or the Tory Party, that's fine. Everyone can express an opinion, of course, on who people vote for. But the more important thing about their disgust, which is not too strong a word, their disgust with the Brexit vote, is that it has crossed the line all the time into a disgust for the whole idea of elections and democracy and the idea that ordinary people who are fickle and easily brainwashed and dim and uneducated, the idea that those people should have a say on big important issues like the future of Britain's relationship with the EU. So their anti-Brexit hysteria uh, was really uh, a hatred for democracy itself. That's what's come through over the past 18 months. They said that we are too low information to make these kind of decisions. We're too easily swayed by demagogues. We are fickle. And all those insults that have been hurled at Brexit voters for a year and a half. Now, those same people who made those insults think they can get away with celebrating democracy, but they can't. Certainly not on Spike's watch. We're not going to let that happen because they are actually making all the same arguments that the people who were against the suffragettes made and the people who were against the vote for working class men made, which is that these people can't be trusted and they will be swayed by colourful orators. They don't have the right education or the right attitude. All those exact same attitudes have been expressed by the elites over the past 18 months. So this is the great irony of this week's celebrations and which actually make them pretty grotesque which is that they are be the suffragettes are being cheered by people who actually hold the same views as the anti-suffragettes. Well, let's focus on the suffragettes because the other thing to talk about, obviously, in relation to this centenary is what it means for women. And there's lots of contemporary feminists today who are kind of claiming the suffragettes as their own. There has even been discussion about the 21st century suffragettes. Vogue magazine ran an article that declared um, a few artists, a few authors and some MPs, Stella Creasy and the Women's Equality Party leader, who isn't an MP yet, Sophie Walker, as modern day suffragettes. Do you think that the Pankhurst, Sylvia Pankhurst, her sisters, her mother, would be contemporary feminists do they share anything of the views of what contemporary feminism stands for today not at all i think it's uh the 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 shift and the change in the idea of feminism or the idea that women should have a role in public life has been so dramatic over the past hundred years it's just enough to make your head spin you know all the pankhursts were actually fairly radical in different ways including emmeline uh, who was not nearly as radical as sylvia who was the most radical but all of them were pretty prepared to carry out dangerous acts criminal acts you know of course there are many issues with the suffragettes one being which people overlook because it's such an uncomfortable fact which is uh, one of the reasons the political elite was were quite happy to give the vote to middle class women in the in 1918 is because they thought it would help to offset the votes of all those working class men who is who they were really afraid of and of course they were afraid of working class women which is why they didn't give them the vote at all but they thought that these 8 million women, most of whom would have to be educated at university level and relatively well off, would offset the votes of all these oiks who were brought on board. You know, the poorest men, the, the most labouring men suddenly had a political voice. So that's an uncomfortable argument that lots of people can't face up to. So the suffragettes were limited in some ways in what they demanded but they did have an attitude that's admirable they were brave they were not afraid to put their lives on the line threw themselves in front of police wielding truncheons who thought nothing of hitting women on the top of the head they suffered torture and they did all this because they believed that women were just as capable as men of engaging in parliamentary politics now what we have are feminists who 
emphasize constantly the idea that women are fragile, that they are easily damaged by certain images, certain words, certain ideas, that we need new laws to protect female politicians from intimidation, which Theresa May launched this week on the anniversary of the vote, which is shocking and really uh, an insult to all the suffragettes. And, you know, the speed with which feminists this week went from cheering the suffragettes to cheering the Advertising Standards Authority for effectively banning an advert that was offensive to women, that sums it all up. Like, literally, within the same 24 hours, they cheered these women who went through extreme hardship for the right of women to be treated equally, and then they cheered a grey bureaucratic institution for banning an advert to save women from feeling offended. This is pathetic and this is outrageous. And the important thing to say about these feminists is that they do not speak for women at large, most of whom would feel incredibly insulted by the idea that they need these posh women and government officials to protect them. Well, something that we've talked about on Spiked a lot is the fact that democracy as it stands hasn't really ever been fully realised. And I suppose the Representation of the People Act is quite a good example of that. As much as it did great things, gave working class men the vote, and as you've said, um, women over 30 had property, it restricted suffrage for a lot of people. It kind of contained checks and balances. The political motivation behind it, as you just told us was about kind of quelling potential opposition from different groups in society I mean what were the limitations of that act and are we still kind of suffering from that desire to dampen democracy today do you think yeah I think we have to always remember the historical context of the act it's not like the British elite wanted to give people the vote that's the last thing they wanted partly the reason they did is because the suffragettes put up such a good fight and and really sustained that pressure for a long period of time and that really freaked people out to see women protesting in that kind of often quite violent way we wouldn't want to downplay that but at the same time we do have to bring in other factors like the fact that there was the first world war uh, and young men were going off to fight for a democracy in which they actually couldn't vote when they got home there was a rebellion in ireland which utterly rattled the British establishment because Ireland was not only a colony but a part of the United Kingdom itself so it was a blow to the very heart of the entire nature of the United Kingdom there were revolts in other colonies across the empire and of course there was the Russian Revolution which sent shockwaves through every single western government so all these factors taken together which had been brewing you know from 1915 1916 1917 terrified the elites in Britain, and they knew they had to do something to try and prevent revolutionary fervour from taking hold or to prevent more instability in the kingdom and in the empire. And so they did that by incorporating people into the parliamentary systems. So it was a cynical move rather than a democratic one. And they hoped that newer parties like the Labour Party and so on would, you know, quell radical sentiment among the working classes and streamline it through parliament which of course is exactly what Labour did and what it has existed to do and what it continues to do in an even more bizarre form which is to you know pacify any kind of dangerous sentiment that might exist among the oiks so you know in one level it was a cynical move on their part but it's still worth celebrating even with its limitations even with its partial nature even with the fact that it was done in order to prevent radical sentiment rather than to allow it to flourish it's still worth celebrating because it's an incredibly important concession and parliamentary democracy or bourgeois democracy or whatever people want to call it is something that it is sometimes really important to engage with in order to change society well finally then brendan i suppose it's all very well and good celebrating this victory for democracy but 
does it really mean anything if we are denigrating democracy today? I mean, what lesson should we learn from radicals who argued for their right to have their political desires listened to 100 years ago? Should the people who are celebrating the 1918 Act get behind Brexit? I think the 1918 events do matter, even if democracy has been denigrated today, which it is, even though, you know, there are many people in the establishment and in the media and in on the left and in liberal circles and in the chattering classes who really still hate the idea of democracy. They fear it. They, nothing puts so much dread into them than the fact that every four years, politicians have to kind of put their career on the line and the future of the country on the line. They hate that. And they particularly hated it in the 2016 referendum because the entire uh, nature of their technocratic setup and their influence and their power and everything else was put up to question and the people rejected it. And that 2016 really demonstrated the power of democracy in a way that we haven't seen in this country possibly since 1918 because um, it was the first time we had a vote where we weren't just asked which party would you like to vote for, which is the thing Sylvia Pankhurst complained about that. The only choice we get is between parties that are actually not that different. But in 2016, we were asked, do you want to unravel the existing political system? And we said yes. It was the first time our votes had extraordinary power. So there is a link between 1918 and 2016, which is that ordinary people demanded and won the right to influence the future of the nation. So democracy is still the most important political value and still worth fighting for. And I think we should see ourselves as building on what the radicals and the suffragettes of 1918 achieved. That was Brendan O'Neill on the centenary of the Representation of the People Act. Now for our next guest. This week, Spiked released its annual Free Speech University rankings, and as you might have been able to guess, the results weren't very encouraging. Censorship is still a massive problem on UK campuses. Most strikingly, we found that censorship of the trans debate, an already contentious subject, is rife at UK universities. A startling 46% of institutions restrict discussion of transgenderism, Leeds Beckett, Newcastle, Imperial and more appear to ban transphobic propaganda outright, while St Andrews, Sussex, Cardiff and others commit themselves to ridding the curriculum of transphobic material. This has consequences. Several high-profile feminists have been banned, disinvited or shunned from university campuses for allegedly being transphobic. One who has felt the sting of campus sensitivity is the lesbian feminist activist and former Labour councillor Linda Bellos. I gave her a ring to find out what she makes of our results and these attacks on free speech. Well, so Linda, will you start off first by telling us about your own experience with campus censorship? Because I believe you got into some bother with uh, students at Cambridge. Can you tell us about that? I was invited to speak and... In the gap between the uh, invitation and the date, we were setting a date, the trans issue broke out. Uh, and, and it was about, as I recall, it was about I was observed some colleagues of mine being stopped from speaking and going to another place to speak. They, they, they were a group of lesbian feminists. And I, um, and I was aware from wider conversations and uh, news coverage that there was a, a growing desire amongst students to take a very narrow view about the issue of gender. And I don't think any of them seem to know anything about the history of the women's liberation movement in the UK. We have a history here in fighting for some of the 
gains that women have made, and I'm talking about lesbian feminists in particular, um, it seemed to me that some of the things that the trans argument was making was anti feminist and anti-women well let's get into that i want to get into that a little bit later but just sticking with the kind of censorship point at the moment i mean your story rings true with our research so spiked free speech university rankings that we've just launched for 2018 revealed that uh, almost half of all uk universities have censorious policies on trans and so that kind of means banning transphobic speech uh, you mean what they claim is transphobic what yes and so obviously the lines are very blurry so it, it, it really yeah. goes it, it can mean anything actually it goes from instructing students to think of people as yeah. their preferred gender or risk getting in trouble I mean does that what do you think of that does that surprise you I'm frankly horrified it seems to me the opposite of freedom of speech freedom of thought, freedom of expression things that we have fought for people have died for these things and they might be offended by a word or an approach. This is not what you go to university for. And I say that as someone who went to university as a mature student. I I had a lot of life experience and not quite the privileges that some of the young people have today. And I remember going to university. I went to Sussex and I read politics. Uh, when did I go? 1978 to 81. And I remember being one of the things I definitely remember was that almost every of my lecturers were male and white and were somewhat sexist. And I remember writing a note to one of my tutors to say, not a lovely guy, but I just asked him, when did women become rational? And I say that because the material that we were uh, we were looking at about rationalism, about uh, the Enlightenment, seemed to be all of men and men justifying women not being included. So I asked a simple question, when did we become rational? Because I don't think you could answer that as though it were a, a norm that women can't think or if we can, that it just suddenly happened. It was no political process. And uh, so that was when I started I suppose becoming a feminist as well when I when I had kind of worked through some of that gender, the social construction of men having power and women having no power. That is how I became a a feminist, and I hadn't been before. Well, yeah, I'm I'm interested in what you think is happening in relation to the censorship of feminist activists like yourself or feminist thinkers because they're you know a, a lot of the discussion about trans certainly on campus seems to be kind of outlawing and silencing a certain opinion and that you know you get people being called turfs you get the kind of yes. abuse of you know, quite terrible abuse of older feminists it seems I mean what's going on there why you know it's it shocks me because it's university I don't think would be the kind of place that would be censoring feminists and yet here we are uh, I agree with you. My fear is that actually it is coming from a group of men, white men, who are simply anti-women. And I'm not talking about people who are transgender. I'm talking about the haters of women. This is an extremely efficient way of promoting hatred of women. And after all, some of the stuff about gender is not predicated on love of women or even knowledge of the history of women. Okay, so what you've 
argued in terms of you're you're very right and I agree with you in the fact that kind of censoring feminists from coming to campus or silencing debate about trans is certainly detrimental not only to the kind of discussion about the history of women's liberation but also to our discussion and investigation of gender and what that means for both sexes today but by the same logic, uh, it's a, this is a kind of tense question that I'm going to ask you, but I'm interested to hear what you think because lots of other forms of censorship on campus, whether they be um, no harassment policies, which don't, it's not just about physical harassment, it's about sort of verbal things and jokes or policies, equality policies. Um, there's various kind of bans on speakers, which is all done in the name of protecting women. So certain speakers are not allowed to come because they pose a threat to the safe space. It's talking about minorities. There's a kind of, as I see it, a patronising tone in the liberalism on campus. And as you're rightly so angered by the censorship of feminists like yourself in relation to the trans debate, do you think that other speakers who have been censored for other reasons should be allowed to speak as well? Are you in favour of total free speech on campus? Uh, Within the law, I'm inclined to say yes, within the law. And look what happened. And I'm, I, I am deliberately not mentioning the man's name, but a, a representative of the fascist party who stood at the election and was allowed to be on question time. He was rightly allowed to be exposed and he has not been seen since. Their arguments don't stand up to critical questioning. I would not ban them. You give them more publicity by banning them. Expose what they have to say, critique them. That's what our free society is meant to be about. We're not blasted former Soviet Union or the People's Republic of China. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to go even more, push you even more then, because in the late 80s and the 90s, when no platform policies first came about, they were often pushed by feminist groups, um, radicals, lefties on campus. Back then, it was kind of banning the BNP, extremist organisations, you know do you think that we're feeling the after effects of that now where you're at a position where someone like you is censored you know I was a student in as I said mm. late 70s early 80s uh, and I, I was politically active for uh, many decades until in fact my partner was became ill and I do not recall having I mean I don't recall arguments and I remember once when I was at a big demo against the British National Party and and after about three hours of standing outside with the police, you know, being a, a, a barrier, I decided I wanted to go in. And I went into a room full of self-proclaimed fascists as a black woman, as a black lesbian, etc. I went in because I do believe in freedom of speech, mine and theirs. Mm. So I got out without unscathed. Actually, I think they were a bit they were a bit gobsmacked. The more we can argue with them, the better, as far as I'm concerned. And I, they get a lot of publicity uh, by simply being silenced. And they make, they make hay, as it were, out of the very fact they're silenced. I think we should expose them and question them. Yes, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, the whole reason why Spike does the Free Speech University rankings is to kind of highlight the importance of free speech, uh, you know, and highlight the importance of debate, certainly at university. But why do you think free speech, certainly at university, should be defended at all costs? I mean, why do you think that students, do you think students should kind of stand up for this very basic right today? 
I don't know at all costs. Uh, there are, there, you know, violence isn't one a, a cost I would think is acceptable at a university. I do think, however, that if you try to cosset yourself from the arguments that you don't like, then you don't develop the arguments to contest them. You couldn't persuade your members of your family or your friends or your your neighbours, your workmates, of and with using your university education, which presumably gives you facts and the ability to argue, you wouldn't have the arguments to make with your colleagues against fascism or or, or whatever it is, because you haven't developed them. Uh, arguing isn't just having a nice, quiet discussion with your friend and not getting hurt, I put in inverted commas. And I and I don't wish to be rude, and, and I know some people are hurt, but I, I'm a black woman who grew up in this country in 1950. I was born in 1950. So all through the 50s, where the word nigger was used to describe a shoe polish, the out-and-out racism was every day on television, on radio, everywhere, in the newspapers. I grew up with that, and it has made me desirous of changing that world (laughs) rather than shutting people up. That was Linda Bellos on campus censorship. And if you want to find out where your university ranks, go to spikes-online.com forward slash F-S-U-R and check out our results. Well, now let's move on to our final guest. We've discussed Me Too on this podcast several times. The fury over sexual harassment seems never-ending, and unfortunately it's picking up speed. With the President's Club scandal or non-scandal, the sacking of the F1 grid girls and darts walk-on girls here in the UK, all in the name of Me Too. When this happens, you have to stop and ask the question of whether contemporary feminism has actually any interest in women at all. But hearteningly, more and more women, and feminists actually, are coming forward to criticise this puritanical mentality. One of them is Wendy Kaminar, a lawyer, author and spiked columnist. Feminist herself, I decided to ask Wendy whether or not Me Too was making her rethink her position in relation to feminist politics. So Wendy, we're now several months into the Me Too movement, it's 2018, and it seems to be picking up steam in places. There are more sackings, more Twitter trials, more scandals. And I think at this point, it's probably very important to ask whether or not this movement, Me Too, is a good thing. You've called it feminist vigilantism in your column for Spike. So tell me, is there anything redeeming in what seems to be this witch hunt? There is certainly redeeming value in raising some awareness about serious workplace sexual harassment, which is a long-standing problem. But the Me Too movement has gone way beyond protesting workplace harassment, and it has also gone way beyond what might be considered more mainstream or commonsensical definitions of harassment. And of course, because so much of this is happening on social media, it's become a rather irrational movement. It's a very emotional movement. It's not reasoning its way through the difficult questions that are raised, especially when you have a very broad definition of harassment that includes things like one unwelcome advance, whatever, you know, whatever that is. And, you know, from my perspective, everybody is entitled to one unwelcome advance because 
how do you know it's unwelcome until you make it? But there is an argument to be made that we shouldn't have people making advances towards each other in the workplace. I'm sympathetic to that argument. And I'm sympathetic to the concerns of women who feel that they've been kept down at work because they don't fulfill uh, certain stereotypic notions of femininity, because they haven't responded appropriately um, as, as, say, male supervisors would want them to respond. But again, as I've said, this, this movement has gone way beyond trying to stop or deter serious harassment in the workplace into an effort to regulate people's private lives, regulate the way people interact in social situations, and it has a very low bar for harassment. And of course, there's the problem of believing all allegations when they when the allegations are made by somebody with whom you sympathize, and not even acknowledging that people who are accused have some sort of right to present their own side of the story, you know, have some sort of right to defend themselves, and that we shouldn't automatically believe every accusation. That goes against every notion of of due process and justice. You mentioned the fact that some of the Me Too campaigners, and I have to say most of them do tend to be celebrities, (laughs) portray men as ostensibly bad, that men have been harassers and abusers for years this is kind of the argument and that it's time to start protecting women today so they advocate introducing new laws and new policies to police behavior between the sexes whether that be in the workplace or out on the street but protecting women from the evils of men is actually a pretty old tenet of some of the previous women's movements can you tell us more about that it was certainly um, a very important aspect of the Victorian women's movement. Women's movement in America started, well, you can date it back in some ways to the early 1800s. Officially, it it really starts with meeting at Seneca Falls in in the mid-1800s. And there was, even back in the the 19th century, there there were tensions between women's rights activists who wanted protective legislation, who saw women's liberation, though they didn't really think in terms of liberation, but let's say women's rights or improving women's status in society as being a function of limiting the freedoms of men. And that was an understandable view in the 19th century because women really didn't have rights. They didn't have property rights. They lost their rights when they got married. They didn't have a right to vote. So it was unrealistic to expect them in the short term to be able to stand up for themselves because they didn't have the legal right to do so. They didn't even have the legal right to enter a lot of professions. But even back then, you had feminists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton in America. You had feminists like really one of the original feminists, um, Mary Wollstonecraft, putting forth a different vision of what life could be for women, talking about women as human beings, just like men, as people with a great capacity for reason, as people who had a natural right to be, to an equal education, to equal access to the professions. And that was, at the time, uh, quite aspirational. It was a vision of what women could become, but it was it was a vision that was certainly worth working toward. And that's why, say, Elizabeth Cady Stanton advocated liberalizing divorce laws because she saw some women as being trapped in marriage. A lot of women's rights advocates wanted to 
make it even more difficult to divorce because they were focused on the problem of men abandoning their wives who wouldn't have the means to take care of themselves. So in the 19th century and in the early 20th century, before women were enfranchised, before women had property rights and rights in the workplace, before women were treated as adult human beings with rights, it was understandable that there was this movement to improve their status by protecting them. But that's not so understandable today, because even if we don't, we haven't yet achieved social equality, we have certainly achieved legal equality. You know, even if we haven't achieved economic equality, we have achieved legal equality. Women do have the capacity to stand up for themselves and to protect themselves. And, you know, we have changed in the last, well, really since the second wave of feminism, we've reformed rape laws, for example, so that marital rape, which really until getting into the late 20th century was legal in a lot of places, that's that's no longer legal. We have, we've had workplace harassment laws for a long time. Women now have the capacity to stand up for themselves. So we don't have to treat them like the downtrodden maidens of 1875. And one of the main consequences of treating women like downtrodden, wilting, wallflower maidens seems to be putting sexual freedom in danger. Gaining sexual freedom was about women being able to handle their own sex lives, make their own choices, whether they, even if they sometimes were bad, free from regulation or stigma. But with the panic around sexual harassment now, I think, attempting to strap sexual desire back down with rules and consent classes and conduct policies and all these kind of things we're seeing, do you think women's sexual freedom is actually potentially at risk once again? I think it is happening. And part of the reason it's happening is that sexual violence is being trivialized. Sexual violence is not having some clumsy teenage or 25-year-old boy put his hand on your knee. You know, sexual violence is not having somebody make a sexual advance that you just don't have the confidence to say no to when you're dealing with somebody who is is not going to assault you if you say no. I mean, it, some of these, it, it's as if some of these young women don't even want to give men a chance not to assault them. The sexual revolution did away with the double standard, and doing away with the double standard was a, a really essential aspect of women's liberation. It's, it's what enabled them to be, to enter the workplace without being shamed for being single women who might have sex lives. It's what helped advance the abortion rights movement. It was so essential to the liberation of women. And to walk away from that, well, you know, it's, it's as if I said in my piece that, that women who are enjoying the freedom to say yes to sex act as if they've lost the ability to say no. And you really can't have one without the other. You, you can't ask to be treated as a helpless victim whenever you are engaged in a sexual encounter and then at the same time present yourself as an adult human being who has the right and the capacity to make choices about her own sexual behavior. Well, when do you call yourself a feminist? And there's a kind of strange thing happening in relation to the Me Too movement. There's a really strong generational divide, I find. Lots of the feminists who are raising questions about say, the destruction of due process or whether or not this kind of scalp nature of the 
debate is good for women. Lots of these feminists are older and they're being told that they're behind the times. They're being told that they're kind of become snow blind to men's abuse and that they should just kind of shut up and listen to younger women. With this kind of viciousness, this intolerance to debate and the criticisms that you have of the Me Too movement as a whole, I mean, I have to ask you, do you still call yourself a feminist? It's hard for me not to call myself a feminist because I've been a feminist all my adult life. I feel like a feminist. Um, but for me, feminism is equality, equality under the law. It's it's distributing the same rights and freedoms to men and women. It's not making assumptions about how women will behave according to you know, longstanding stereotypes of femininity. It's not demonizing masculinity any more than it's exalting femininity. It's tied to civil libertarianism. I can't, from for myself, I can't imagine being a feminist and not being a civil libertarian. And being a civil libertarian means having a foundational regard for due process. You know, it, it means proceeding on the basis of evidence and not assumptions and emotions. It means having a very high regard for free speech. So, you know, to the extent that feminism is now associated with an anti-libertarian movement that doesn't value due process, that doesn't value free speech, that doesn't value the equal distribution of rights and freedoms among men and women, you know, I, I hesitate to call myself a feminist because that's not what I want to be associated with. At the same time, I don't know how I cannot call myself a feminist. It's a tricky question. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. And to get your daily dose of spiked opinion, head to spiked-online.com. Subscribe to our podcast feed. And if you'd like to help Spike continue to thrive, please be sure to make a donation. Thanks for listening.